In the beginning, God created man. Hello. Then he saw that man was lonely, so he created woman. Oh, man. And the two were united in one flesh, and it was good. And then it went very, very bad. This is your this fault. This is your fault. And ever since, man and woman have found all kinds of creative ways to mess up this holy institution. This is your this fault. This is your fault. Join us as we look at marriages throughout the Bible and learn a thing or two about the marriages of today in Once Upon a Marriage. All right. Good morning, Christ Church. Good to be with you this morning. Good morning to those of you in the upper room and those following along online as well. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church, and we launched this new series entitled Once Upon a marriage. Welcome to all of those who are new this morning to Christ Church. You're jumping in at a great time. Uh, hopefully, somebody invited you and you have come and are present because of that. And those of you who haven't invited someone yet, this is a great series to invite people to because there are a lot of broken and hurting marriages out in this world. There are a lot of people who are open to conversations around marriage because we, we, we find this as a regular institution in our world. So I want to encourage you, invite a friend, invite somebody to come and hear and be a part of these next couple of weeks as we travel through Once Upon a Marriage. also want to throw out one more invite to you, and that is on March 1st, on Friday night, March 1st, we are going to have an opportunity for those of you who are couples and married to come to church and spend some time sitting and talking with other couples about what this series has meant for you and for your marriage. This is going to be a sacred space created as you come and share your stories and unpack some of the content over the last couple weeks. Uh, we're calling it uh, the One Night Stand. Come take a stand for your marriage and come to the One Night Stand where you will sit with other couples and talk about marriage. So I want to put that on your radar. There's information on your half sheet as well. All right, here we go. Once upon a marriage. We are going to be spending these weeks looking at biblical marriage. Biblical marriage, biblical couples. And even as I use that term, I have to be honest with you, I have like a knee-jerk reaction. I'm always really hesitant to use this word because it's a loaded word with a lot of baggage, with a lot of connotations, with a lot of social and political ramifications to it. And so before you turn me off, before you hit the mute button and tune out, uh, I want to encourage you to hang with me because we're going to be looking at some biblical marriages and what you might find could really surprise you as we look at biblical marriage. For example, today we are going to be looking at a biblical marriage of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, which already tells you this is going south fast. Uh, because there's three names in that. So I uh, want to let you know as well, parents want to be transparent with you. This series is rated M for mature because we're talking about marriage. And marriage is a mature institution. We're going to be talking about things like sexual intimacy. We're going to talk about communication. We're talking about faithfulness, all sorts of decision-making, lots of different things. So parents want to be upfront with you. This is rated M for marriage and maturity uh, because marriage is a mature conversation to be had. So there you go. Let's jump into it. Jacob and 
his wives. A little upfront for you, I want to let you know, Jacob actually uh, is behind the eight ball to begin with, this poor guy, because he is inheriting a bad marriage model from his parents. Uh, those of you who have children and are married, be careful, be, watch uh, what you do in your marriage, because there's a good chance that your habits and your behaviors will be passed on to your children. This is the case with Jacob. He learns a lot of bad behaviors from his parents, Rebecca and Isaac. Suffice to say, listen to this, his mom manipulates his dad to send Jacob away under the pretense of finding a wife so that his brother won't kill him. All right? Enough said. He's coming from a messy house and a messy home. So it doesn't surprise us that Jacob himself carries a lot of those habits and messiness into his life. He gets sent off by mom and dad back to the motherland, back to the fatherland where he's supposed to meet up with his uncle Laban, uncle Laban. And as he goes back, he stumbles into a beautiful woman who's feeding some camels and sheep and he meets her and he discovers that this is Laban's daughter, Rachel. And he says, ah, you are the one that I have come to find. I'm looking for your dad. I'm looking for uh, my uncle Laban because I'm supposed to marry one of his daughters. Yes, one of his cousins. Again, this goes south really fast, people. Hang with me. He meets Uncle Laban and says, Uncle Laban, wow, I found you. This is fantastic. You have two daughters. Your older daughter is named Leah. Leah is the older daughter, and Rachel is the younger daughter. And as the Bible would describe them, there was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. That is to say, she did not sparkle in Jacob's eyes. But conversely, Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. That is the biblical way of saying she's a hottie, okay? So you've got Leah, Leah, and you've got Rachel. And Jacob falls head over heels for Rachel, wants to marry Rachel. Goes to his uncle Laban, says, Uncle Laban, I want to marry Rachel. What do I got to do? I'm willing to pay a bride price for her of working seven years. Years. It would have been common to pay a bride price, a dowry to work as an indentured servant, someone that you could, uh, someone would, would enter into that, usually for two to three years. Two to three. Jacob offers seven. I mean, it's like over the top. And before all you ladies start like elbowing, like, oh, that's so romantic. He'll work seven twice as long as anybody else for her. Before you go that far, we're going to find out more about Jacob and his motivations soon, okay? Jacob agrees to the seven years with Uncle Laban where he's going to work, and at the end of the seven years, he will be able to marry Rachel. Seven years goes by. Jacob goes to Uncle Laban, and he says, Uncle Laban, the time has come. I am here to ask for Rachel's hand in marriage that you promised me. I promise to love her, to serve her, to cherish her, to protect her, to watch over her, to walk with her, to hold her when she cries, to give her a back massage after the long day of shepherding. I promise to be there for her and be a good son-in-law. No. He says, now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Okay, Jacob, we know what you're after. Jacob is pretty demanding and pretty straightforward. He makes Rachel into a sex object and says, Man, I've been waiting seven years. I'm ready. Let's make this happen. Laban, under obligation, 
regardless of Jacob's motivation, had already agreed. So he says, okay, start the wedding feast and the wedding preparations. Now, in the Old Testament, just like today, weddings are a big deal, lots of parties, often not uncommon to find alcohol present at these, at these parties and at these marriage situations, just like today. And sometimes people imbibe a little too much. Perhaps you have seen this. Perhaps you've been a part of this. Uh, likely to say that in this case, there's a good chance alcohol was involved or at least a very big veil because Jacob gets married, goes into the wedding night, wakes up the next morning, rolls over and says, that's not Rachel, that's Leah, that's the wrong girl. I married the wrong one. Don't know how much he remembers from the night before, but regardless, he wakes up in the morning and he has married and consummated the marriage with Leah, the older daughter. Goes to Laban, says, Laban, what gives, man? You promised me, Rachel. I got Leah here in bed with me. Laban says, well, work for another seven years, and I'll give you Rachel. Jacob says, fine, but I want the sex up front. A week from now, I want to be married to her and be intimate with her. And then I'll work your seven years. So we find, again, more insight into what's really motivating Jacob in this situation. Laban agrees, and so Jacob sleeps with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He brings into these marriage, these marriages, some bad behavior, specifically that of favoritism. Favoritism is something from his past, and he brings it into his present. He favors Rachel over Leah. This begins the worst episode of Desperate Housewives you've never seen. Because what happens next is you've got Rachel, who's just a diva. Oh, she's queen. She loves being the favorite, loves being the center of attention, loves being the, being, being the person who just gets doted upon, right? And then you've got Leah. Leah isn't the favorite, but you know what she's got going for her? She's fertile. She can have babies. And in the Old Testament, tremendously important in that time and in that culture to be able to have children. Jacob, being the lusty little man that he is, sleeps with both of them a lot. One, he's able to impregnate Leah. She has four sons. Rachel is barren. Leah is thrilled by this. She's excited by this. Why? She's hoping that by giving him babies... Jacob will start to love her. Talk about a twisted sense of marriage and love. Leah is so desperate to be loved, she's willing to give her body over and give this, this attempt at just giving children, almost manipulating, in order to get a sensation of love. The Bible says it like this. When she has her kids, her first line is, Now my husband will love me. Great, I gave him a baby. Now he'll love me. Well, Rachel, big shocker, becomes jealous of her sister, likes to be the center of attention, can't share the spotlight. And she goes to Jacob and says, Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And then she starts weeping. Jacob throws up his hands and is like, oh my gosh, this isn't, I didn't do this. What are you kidding me? And they get into an argument. They get frustrated with one another. And there's, there's more problems arising. Rachel comes up with a solution. She says, Jacob, 
I want you to marry and sleep with my maidservant. I have a maidservant. I want you to sleep with her, get her pregnant, and then I'll take her baby and raise it as my own. Jacob says, let me get this straight. You want me to sleep with your maidservant, get her pregnant, and then you want to raise her child? Yes, I think I can do that. And so he does. He has another marriage and another baby with another woman. Leah, not to be outdone, knocks on Jacob's door, says, Jacob, you slept with her maidservant. Time to sleep with mine. I'm doing the same thing. Jacob says, if you make me, sleeps with another one, has another baby. Whoa, guys, you cannot make this stuff up. I mean, seriously, it's in the Bible. You didn't know this was in there, did you? Uh-huh, you thought Desperate Housewives was like a new thing. Uh-uh. It's messy people and messy marriages. And so you get to this point where Leah and Rachel are back and forth trying to one-up each other. You have these other two women now that are part of this with their kids being raised by other women other than the, themselves. I mean, it's just nasty. It's bad. Things get so bad that they start to, to barter over who gets to sleep with Jacob. I mean, it gets so bad that Jacob is out walking along in the field one day. I don't know how the guy's walking. But Leah comes out to him and demands that he sleeps with him. It's fascinating. Jacob, who mistreated women as a sex object, has now become simply a tool in a vehicle in a sex object. Don't miss that. In the end, here's what you end up with. One Jacob, four wives, 12 sons, one daughter. You know what you end up with? Put that all together. One messy family. I mean, one messy marriage. And that is a biblical marriage. For everyone out there who aspires to have a biblical marriage, you need to know a very important point that this story drives home. Biblical marriages are not perfect marriages. Biblical marriages are not perfect marriages. Jacob is not perfect. Leah and Rachel are not perfect people. And the marriage, the family, is not perfect. And before we condemn Jacob and his family and point the finger, what about us? The reality that in this room, there is no perfect marriage. Have you replaced your spouse with work? 
Does your spouse compete with a favorite hobby or habit? Is there another man or woman? Perhaps even that man or woman is digital or printed in a magazine. Do you make your marriage all about yourself? Do you need to be the center of attention, your needs, your wants, your desires? Because you love to be the favorite. Are you desperate for love and you'll do anything, anything to get that sensation of being loved because your identity is so weak and it just, it, it, it just is desperate for someone to say that they love you? So you'll compromise on your identity, your ethics, your decisions. Are you a lusty Jacob, a diva Rachel, or a desperate Leah? Biblical marriages are not perfect marriages, and neither are ours. Our marriages are not perfect. Mine isn't. My wife married me. There's no way it's perfect. But ironically, hearing, hearing that biblical marriages aren't all perfect is really good, good news. It means that those of us whose marriages aren't perfect, that deal with struggles, that deal with sin, that deal with stains and failures and problems and issues and money fights and parenting issues, those of us whose marriages are not perfect, you're in good company. You are welcome here. You and your brokenness and your broken marriage are welcome among God's people. Jacob and Leah and Rachel were God's people. You, you are God's people. And your broken, hurting marriages have a place in this conversation. It is precisely because you do not have a perfect marriage that biblical marriages become so powerful. Those of you who have always held up or felt the pressure to have a perfect marriage, the Bible frees you from this and takes you as you are, welcoming you into God's house, into God's story, as one of God's people. Rather than ignore the dysfunction and imperfection of our lives and marriages, we acknowledge it, we tag the bag. Rather than ignoring the dysfunction and imperfection of Jacob and his wives and ourselves, it is exactly that which drives us to seek the advice and example of Christ to be Christian and live out our Christian faith in our marriages. 
Jesus taught on marriage a lot. He talked about it. He spoke about it. And in fact, perhaps even more important for the sake of this morning is recognizing not only what he taught, but who he was in relation to marriage and how the Bible describes Jesus in relation to marriage. The Bible describes Jesus as a bridegroom. He's a groom, this Jesus. And you, the church, the imperfect, broken church, is his bride. Jesus marries you, the church. Ephesians says it like this out of chapter 5. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father, his mother, he's joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Christ loves, cherishes, and commits to you and to your life. And the best way to describe his passion, his fervor, and perhaps even most importantly, his dedication, his unswerving commitment, his promise, the best illustration that the Bible can give is marriage. To show you and describe to you how complete and perfectly you are loved, Romans 5.8 says this, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us although we were still sinners, imperfect, broken. And so, you imperfect people with your imperfect marriages. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved and cherished, and Christ is committed to you. He loves you with all your imperfections, all your sins, all your baggage, all your mistakes, all the stains. He loves you completely, utterly, self-sacrificially. Although you are imperfect, he loves you perfectly. He loves you to the point where he will give up his life for you. And in doing so, he demonstrates to us how a spouse should truly love in marriage. I get a chance to talk with a lot of people about marriage. I get to meet with couples before they get married. I meet with couples after they've been married. I meet with couples and people and individuals where marriage is no longer part of their life. And transparently, honestly, more often than not, I sit with people and they want a silver bullet they want a magic phrase or formula that I can give them. 
so that they can have a perfect marriage. So many people spend all this time wishing they had a perfect biblical marriage. But in truth, for me as your pastor, stop worrying about having a perfect marriage and start putting your energy into loving perfectly in your marriage the way that Christ has already loved you. Don't strive for a perfect marriage. Get busy and start loving the way Christ has loved you. And bring that into your marriage. Bring it into your workplace. Bring it into your friendships. Bring this into the way you parent. Bring this into your marriage. Not that you or your life would be perfect, but that a perfect reflection of Jesus Christ would shine through you. Don't strive for a perfect marriage. Even better than that, strive to love and convey Christ to hurting broken people like your spouse. Strive to love them as close to perfectly as you can because Christ has already demonstrated and shown his love for you. Over these four weeks, you're not going to get a silver bullet. You're not going to get a magic formula. You're going to get this exhortation. First, if you're a broken marriage, if you have broken friendships, broken relationships, you're welcome here. You matter, and your story matters. Further, it's not necessarily about trying to fix it quick, but about seeking to embrace and embody the love that has already been given and poured over to you into the lives of others. That's what we explore. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father, we come before you as we are this morning. We come before you in our brokenness and in our imperfection. We come before you with our broken marriages and broken relationships, broken workplaces, broken parenting. And we glean and study and better understand your grace through Jacob and his messy, broken family. Thank you that you would claim Jacob and Leah and Rachel and their lives for your redemption story, for your biblical narrative. That so also you would claim us 
you would claim us as a part of that biblical story. Free us from the obligation and the presuppositions of feeling as though we have to have these perfect lives or perfect marriages. Instead, help us lean that much more into your grace, into your love, into your goodness, your forgiveness, your perfect love for us made known through Jesus Christ. Embolden us in our lives to bring that perfect life and love of Christ into our marriages and all of our relationships. We ask this knowing that you are good and that you are great and that you seek to make Jesus known in and through us, your people. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.